a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining me as we engage in more wrong think on a daily basis. There's a purpose behind this, of course. It's not just a matter of uh <laughs> to whatever someone says. No, there's such a thing as principled wrong think, such as, uh, oh, I don't know, standing up for yourself, uh, asserting your rights, claiming them, using them, defending them. Not that anybody would ever try to push you around or try to take those rights away. Am I right? Okay. It's funny. Um, my uh, my birth dad actually sent me an article a uh, couple of days. Maybe it was yesterday. Sorry. The, the week goes very quickly. It's hard to, to keep track of time. But uh, <clears throat> it was a national article from the Daily Beast, which is a pretty hardcore left-leaning publication. And in particular, this article was about uh, <clears throat> a group of folks in, in my neck of the woods in Utah County, Utah, who apparently were, were trying to uh, disprove, you know, the, the hospital COVID numbers. Our beds are overwhelmed. We don't have enough room. You know, we're, we're, we're inundated with patients. And so people were actually showing up at uh, one of the local hospitals here and trying to uh, either, either flat out say, look, let us see. We want to see if all your beds in ICU are filled or not. Or they were trying to surreptitiously, well, I have a loved one in there and I really want to get in there and see how they're doing just to, to get a glimpse of it. And, and of course, this became a scandal. Uh, you know, there's the 9-11 truth deniers or the 9-11 truthers. And now you have COVID truthers, which is a good way of trying to dismiss people who might be noticing something that they shouldn't. Now, I'm not saying that there's, uh, you know, this is a proven conspiracy theory. And yes, the hospitals are all lying. But can I at least advance the idea that maybe... The numbers are being reported on or presented in a way that uh, could lead a person who just looks at them casually into thinking it's far worse than it actually is. Case in point, we are in the midst of cold and flu season. Flu being one of the operative words. And is it normal this time of year for um, emergency hospitalizations because of the flu? Now, if the answer is yes, if, if the answer is, well, yeah, hospital beds are usually running at about 90% of capacity this time of year, then that at least gives us some context. It's not like, well, you know, normally these beds are all empty and we're just standing around picking our noses and looking for something to do. And suddenly we've got all these COVID patients. Yes, I'm sure they're treating COVID patients. Why? Well, because I'm sure it's going around. But why give the impression that it's a much bigger thing than it is? So while I may not agree with the methodology, you know, trick your way in, try to bluff or demand your way in, I understand that there are people who really want to know, look, are we being lied to? And I think that is absolutely a fair question. And I don't believe necessarily that uh, that even the medical professionals should be hiding, hiding behind HIPAA laws, you know, in order to uh, uphold a particular narrative. I think there needs to be transparency, you know, with respect to patients' privacy, of course. They don't need to give any details, but... The, the public's trust is, is wearing a bit thin. 
so I don't think anyone is wrong for asking questions. How you go about trying to find those answers eh, might hurt your cause more than it helps it. Anyway, back to this article from the Daily Beast. It portrays these folks as, uh, you know, selfish, knuckle-dragging contrarians. You know, this is what flyover country is, really, right? If you're not from one of the two coasts, well, you know, you uh, you don't have enough common sense to come in from out of the rain. You know, it's just, it's very condescending. But that's not the worst of it. I, I was thinking about including a link to it, but I, I don't want to give them the clicks. But I'll tell you the worst part, the, the most hyperbolic and, and to me hysterical part of the article was not only were these protesters trying to find out the truth about COVID, in quotation marks, but they were doing it at a hospital where, are you sitting down? A nurse died of COVID. Sorry, I'm just going to wait for you to stop sobbing uncontrollably. And look, I, I know now, now I'm being a little hyperbolic, but that was the whole angle. How dare these people protest when a nurse died of COVID? And I think, wow. I've seen some pretty shameless, uh, you know, red meat throwing from the political right. Used to do it myself, as a matter of fact. But that was the most shameless appeal to emotion and appeal to authority and an appeal to all that is dear and holy of this narrative. This nurse, a first responder, who died from COVID. Look, that's a huge tragedy that she died. A lot of people have died. Some have actually died because of complications with COVID. Tragedies, all of them. But not big enough tragedies for us to set aside our natural rights and to allow people who think they know what's best for everyone to run roughshod over us. If that sounds harsh, I don't know another way to put it. It's very foolish and short-sighted to simply surrender to emotion, which this article is, is big on. I mean, you better, if you want to search it up and read it, I'm sure you can find it. But I'd recommend you better have a barf bag close by because it's, uh, it's an example of some of the worst yellow journalism that you're going to encounter. And I guess it illustrates something that um, m- most of us have suspected but now we, we are probably seeing it in the light of day and, and clearly that this is a culture war. And and if if I had to define, well, what are the sides, Brian? Um, I think it would really come down to the sides of, look, there, there are those of us who simply want to be left alone. Let me live my life. Let me pursue happiness. Let me do it on my own terms. And I will afford you that very same luxury. I'm not going to sit there and tell you what to do. The other side is those who feel like you will do what I say or else. And unfortunately, they um, have captured some of the levers of power, some of the different institutions in society, and feel like, well, if enough of us feel this way, we should be able to force you to do this. Meaning bring the state with its coercive force into you know the equation. So a little bit later in the hour, I'm going to be talking about how this is one of, in my opinion, this is one of the best measures of whether or not you are a person of good character. And that is found in your willingness to use persuasion rather than coercion in your interactions with others. Because when you strip away all the labels, you strip away the political and the tribal identities, persuasion and coercion are the only two dynamics that really matter. And they matter because they show up 
in people's behavior. You can actually watch a person and see how they are behaving. I also have a great article from Judge Andrew Napolitano, a great primer explaining what our natural rights are and why they matter, both in good times and bad times. So, I mean, if you want to portray people as, yeah, 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 they're knuckle-dragging contrarians and, you know, they don't deserve any respect and, in fact, we ought to throw them all in jail or throw them in the gulag, that's great. But for those of us who know what our natural rights are and are willing to stand and assert them, even if we're going to be misunderstood or misrepresented or maligned for doing so, there are some very solid reasons for doing so. And Judge Napolitano does a marvelous, marvelous job. So, I want to dive in here. We're coming up on the break, but I want to dive in, starting with uh, an article from Patrick West. This is from Spiked Online. And uh, after my rant here, you'll probably say, well, of course you were going to go here. The headline, the pandemic has empowered the petty. Too many have taken too easily to telling others what they can and can't do. And this is a perfect illustration. Now, this is from across the pond, so uh, Spiked is is uh, published overseas, but uh, well, and online, of course. But listen to what uh, Patrick West has to say here. He says, The woman behind the entrance to the shop silently sways her head from side to side, indicating that I may not come in until someone has come out. The man at the post office counter says, Not that way, when I try to exit, as I fail to notice the directional arrows on the floor. I overhear a Radio 2 phone-in while queuing in a pharmacy with a government spokesman telling listeners what they are and are not allowed to do. A few weeks back, there was a woman patrolling the aisles of carriages on the train, checking if the passengers were wearing masks. Because I was eating, I had lowered mine. She gave me her blessing that I was indeed allowed to do this. Now, he says, these are just a few of my own recent encounters during the pandemic. You'll have had similar experiences being told what you are allowed to do. My contender for the most hated word of 2020, allowed. (laughs) He says, you'll have been subjected to people bossing you around, whether they be officials, shop staff, or mask enforcers from the general public, of others exerting their power over you. I'll share the rest of this article coming up in a few moments, but I think it sets a very nice tone for what we are up against. And maybe it's not as stringent as what he's facing over there in Great Britain, but I promise you, you have encountered people wanting to exert their power over you, and there are a lot lusting to do it right this moment. We'll jump back on here, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to encourage you to please visit my website. It's very simply thebrianhydeshow.com. That is where you will find not only my daily show notes, which are chock full of information and links to the various guests and the articles that I share here on the air, but also you will find resources for wrong thinkers, including some of the news aggregators that I subscribe to. And then you too can have interesting stories of every type arrive in your email and you can use them as you see fit. There's some great stuff on there as well. You learn a little, little bit more about me. There's archives of the show if you want to catch up on some back episodes or whatever. 
You can also consider subscribing to the podcast, which I really wish you would. Give me some feedback. There's a comments feature. And if you choose, you might even consider becoming a donor, a patron of the show. You can do it for as little as a buck a month or $5 a month or $10 a month. This is my promise to you. Those who donate can rest assured that I will use that money for the sacred purpose of proclaiming liberty throughout the land. And frankly, uh, when you donate, it's a huge help to me because it allows me to focus on this work rather than having to hustle upside gigs to keep the wolf away from my door. So it's greatly appreciated, and I thank you in advance. Back to the article here from Patrick West. This is on Spiked Online, and he's talking about people exerting their power over you, how this pandemic has empowered the petty. Now, if you've encountered this, he says, you've probably heard this excuse. Of course, these people who are flexing for you, they're only following government instructions. But he says, you know that many derive pleasure from their new roles as enforcers. Human beings have always loved assuming positions of power. It satisfies an instinct to dominate others. It affords them the thrill that comes from telling other people what to do. By belittling, humiliating, even inflicting pain on others. The Stanford Prison Experiment is a metaphor for the human condition. Power has forever gone to people's heads. He says lockdown apologists will say that the government is only trying to do the right thing, but we know that many in government and the scientists advising it are intoxicated by the power now at their disposal. As the Daily Mail's political sketch writer Henry Deeds observed this week, Health Secretary Matt Hancock's discordant smiling and look of delight at Monday's press conference is telling. He revels in the spotlight. He marvels at his own authority. Never mind that the coronavirus showed signs of wearing itself out before lockdown too. Forget this month's vaccine breakthroughs. The appetite of our power-hungry masters is both insatiable and palpable. Hence the belief that the government will seek a harsh-tier regime virtually indistinguishable from the current lockdown beyond December 2nd and another lockdown proper in January. But he says, back to our everyday vexations. The notion that power is exerted in small ways, not immediately obvious, will be known to most humanities undergraduates and those familiar with woke culture, which is heavily indebted to the theories, indebted rather to the theories of Michael, Michael, let's try that again, Michel Foucault, who argued that power was ubiquitous and invisible. This has manifested itself in the belief in microaggression and safe spaces those havens from omnipresent white male power. Foucault called himself a disciple of Friedrich Nietzsche, who believed that power was the defining force in life. Except Nietzsche was more concerned with power as inherent in individuals. As he wrote, the, will, the world is the will to power and nothing besides. Even in you yourselves are this will to power and nothing besides. Nietzsche thought the desire to dominate was both a good thing and a bad thing good for the self in that it could spur us to become better and stronger people, immune to the injunctions of the herd, but potentially bad for the self in that others seek to dominate us. Quote, pleasure arises from power. Happiness consists in the dominant, dawning consciousness of power and triumph, progress, the strengthening of the type, the, that capacity for great willing. Patrick West says that's good advice for self, a spur to improvement, but he says, whenever I'm told what I'm allowed to do or physically inhibited by those exerting their will to power, I'm reminded of Nietzsche's cautionary sentiments. 
Now, he says during his time at university in the 1990s, when he first became familiar with Foucault's teachings, he says, I had to study a course on statistics in, better to, in order to better assess historical documents in modern politics. As befitting Foucault's skeptical philosophy, we were told to be wary of opinion poll findings because people are more inclined to declare support for a more socially acceptable political party. People were less likely to say that they intended to vote conservative in the UK or Republican in the US because that doesn't make for a good public image. Pollsters, we were told, adjusted their statistics to account for this. To judge by the 2016 Brexit vote here or this month's U.S. presidential election, he says, pollsters are failing to adjust accordingly. In the latter case especially, the polls woefully underestimated support for the unfashionable candidate. Now, he says, I've heard and read many people doubt the YouGov poll, finding 72% of people support lockdown too. And he says, that figure doesn't ring true for me either. We are manifestly behaving different this time around. The streets are busier with people going out just because they can and they want to. And we no longer do those ostentatious displays of social avoiding in open spaces. The majority only wear masks when and where it's mandatory. He says, the dubious YouGov poll has an obvious explanation. It's unfashionable to say that you are opposed to lockdown. People fear appearing a callous granny killer. They fear association with anti-mask fundamentalists and anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists. He says, as reported in the Daily Telegraph, BBC Radio 4's Today program has taken to calling Britain's endangered fishermen fisher people. <laughs> Logically speaking, the BBC's non-sexist initiative is correct. There are females who fish, even if they're more likely to be anglers than harvesters of the sea. And firefighter, has supplanted firemen with no great fuss, yet the awkward robotic construction Fisher People is less elegant, less romantic. He says gender-neutral descriptions can also be a source of confusion. Those unfamiliar with movies might be surprised to learn that Sean Young of Blade Runner fame is an actress. Likewise, Lionel Shriver would be described as an authoress. People called Robin, Alex, and Sam face this kind of difficulty all the time. Is there a solution? As is the case with language in the vernacular, it's normally about what rings true and what sounds right. Fisher people fails on both counts. After all, we still use princess and duchess, which are both the feminine form. But he says Prince Kate or Duke Meghan huh, will never catch on. Again, this is Patrick West. A couple of different thoughts from him. I love his thought, though, on how the panic has empowered the petty. And it makes me sad that, uh, that so many people you know, thrive on that sort of thing. I, I know it's, it's human nature. You give someone a little bit of power, chances are they're going to run with it. And back to the concept of the culture war that, that is going on around us. There was a line here from David Estimato. This was in an article published on the Hill. The culture war is a distraction. I wanted to share this with you. He says, uh, you know, we, we have this idea that, well, when government gets involved, it's kind of a scorekeeper. It's outside the game, but he reminds us that that scorekeeper, as we call it, is actually, it's a corporation made up and operated by actual flesh and blood human beings, meaning you're dealing with individuals that have their own interests, incentives, blind spots, and shortcomings. Unless we believe that the state is possessed of some supernatural essence that makes it different from other human-operated organizations. And by the way, a lot of people do believe this. 
He says, well, then it wouldn't be at all clear why we should consider the state a scorekeeper unbound by the rules and assumptions in place for all other mere mortals. Here's his take, though. He says, the state represents human beings at their worst. Force instead of persuasion, impunity instead of accountability, censorship instead of free inquiry. So instead of polarizing and treating each other as enemies, we must come to understand political power itself is the enemy. Why are these lockdowns and, and uh, why, are, why are so many of these policies so contentious? It's because they've been politicized. It's because we got the state involved, because the element of coercion was allowed to become part of it. But could it be done without Sweden, Finland, Norway? You guys seem to be doing all right. How'd that work out for you? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. I've got a couple of great articles I want to share with you. Um, First off, Jeff Minnick writing for intellectualtakeout.org has uh, has a warning about a new virus going on. It's IDVID 2020. And I want you to hear him out on this. He says, it seems a newer virus is now infecting American citizens. It is... uh, it can be deadly, killing off joy, compassion, reason, and objectivity. It renders its victims deaf to argument and blind to facts, creating in some of them so fevered a passion they wind up in cloud cuckoo land. Now, he says the virus goes under the name of ideology, or IDVID 2020. ID stands for ideology, VI for virus, and D for disease. In the most extreme cases, those infected by IDVID 2020 lose all ability to ask questions or think for themselves. They enter a zombie-like state, parroting slogans, rioting in the streets, destroying the business of innocent people, and serving as useful tools for their leaders. He says this latest scourge can also be deadly for relationships. This past week alone, I've heard of two marriages destroyed by IDVID 2020. In the first instance, the wife left her husband, citing various grievances, but putting the bulk of her blame for her marital dissatisfaction on his conservative politics. In the second, the wife is ending her marriage because her husband believes the left committed fraud in our presidential election. Jeff Minnick says, In the last year, I've also heard from readers whose loved ones were stricken with IDVID 2020. A young mother who unfriended her cousin on Facebook for expressing support for President Trump. A son who disowned his mother and father for the same reason. And several grown children who accused their mothers of propagandizing them in their adolescence by taking them to church. Now, certain groups appear immune to this disease, he says. Children under 10 rarely catch IDVID 2020. Those who are self-employed and those who labor in places such as auto repair shops, hair salons, and the construction sites also seem protected against this virus. Legal immigrants to the United States, especially from countries like Cuba, China, and Venezuela, also seem unlikely to contract it. Given what we know of those poor souls infected by this bug, He says we can point to two primary sources of contamination for IDVID 2020, our universities and our mainstream media. This disease spreads through universities with alarming rapidity, moving from professors to students and from students to their classmates and friends. 
Signs of the contagion can be detected when the carriers begin using code words like white fragility, systemic racism, and toxic masculinity. Other symptoms include cynicism, a lost sense of humor, a belief that America is evil and claims of victimhood. The contagion has reached pandemic stage when we find students demanding safe spaces, suppression of free speech, and the firing of any teacher accused of committing a microaggression. Those who take their news only from the mainstream media are also likely to contract IDVID 2020. They listen to stations like CNN, CBS, or Fox News as they eat breakfast and dress for work, and then come home and watch these same stations while drinking a glass of wine or preparing a quiche and salad for supper. Once IDVID 2020 gains a hold on them, it produces several effects. A sense of moral superiority, indignation, contempt for those free from IDVID, as we saw in the marriages above, and in extreme cases, an ongoing interior rage. Unfortunately, he says many of those who fall ill with IDVID 2020 may take years to recover, if they recover at all. But here's the good news for the rest of us. You don't need to social distance, wear masks, or endure a lockdown to battle IDVID 2020. A vaccine already exists, which is 99.9% effective against this deadly virus. This marvelous drug consists consists of the following ingredients. A belief in objective truth. The ability to ask questions. A refusal to accept the validity of information without double-checking its sources. A feeling of gratitude for being alive. A capacity for laughter. A knowledge of history. A love of country. An equally fervent love of liberty. And a faith in something other than politics. Jeff Minnick says if we take this medicine every day and share it with others, we will put an end, eventually, to IDVID 2020. That's a clever piece, but I think he's dead on. And uh, you will find a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, probably one worth sharing. So I want to come back to something here that I referenced earlier, and that is natural rights. Why is it not only, you know, permissible for people to stand up for them, but why is it a duty, a good idea? Judge Andrew Napolitano has an excellent explanation His article is titled, Governors Begin Another Wave of Personal Liberty Attacks with COVID-19 Resurgence. This is published in the uh, Washington Times. And he starts with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Some of you will be familiar with this. Maybe many will not. Rightful liberty is unobstructed action, according to our will, within limits drawn around us by the equal rights of others. I do not add within the limits of the law, because the law is often but the tyrant's will and always so when it violates, violates the rights of an individual. Now, Judge Napolitano says, if, as if nanny state governors have been sleepwalking through the tyrannical shutdowns and their disastrous consequences last spring and summer, as if they were ignorant of the economic destruction of those they barred from going to work or operating their businesses, as if they thought it is lawful to assault natural rights and constitutional guarantees, these same governors are now beginning another wave of interferences with personal liberty. Slowly, over the past 10 days, while the eyes of the public and the media have been on the counting of votes in the presidential election and the ensuing allegations and litigations, governors in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Connecticut, and New York have threatened to impose or have begun to impose their unconstitutional, illegal, immoral, and illogical efforts to shut down society in order, they claim, 
to rid the land of the corona 19 or the covid 19 virus now judge napolitano says by doing so they've reignited the age old debate of individual liberty versus public safety in this case the safety they claim to be enhancing is safety from disease yet by their executive orders they have purported to use state law to interfere with freedoms without due process freedoms that are guaranteed by the u.s constitution by doing that they have set themselves up for criminal prosecutions when normalcy returns here's the backstory the judge says for the past four years i've been working on a 650 page treatise that explores the origins of human freedom from a natural law perspective The book traces the recognition by scholars, jurists, theologians, and in the case of America at its founding, radical revolutionaries like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who truly believed and passionately argued that human freedom, our individual power to make unobstructed choices, comes from within us and not from the government. Most of the historical defenders of this truism also believed in God and argued that he made us free by giving us free will. Now, this understanding of natural rights was wedded to the United States at its birth in 1776, when Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. And again in 1791, when Madison wrote in the Ninth Amendment that because human liberty is so expansive, the government must protect even unstated, unenumerated rights. Protect our rights from whom? Well, the framers uh, could not easily or could easily answer that question, rather. Yet the folks who run the government today don't even want that question asked because the answer implicates them. In the revolutionary era, colonists could protect themselves from evildoers attempting to steal their property or take their lives. But the foe they feared most was the government. And they fought a bloody war against the government of King George III because it assaulted their economic rights and their right to self-government. Napolitano says history is repeating itself without the courageous revolutionaries. It's not my neighbor or even a thief in the night who impairs my personal liberty. It is the government. It does so just as King George did under the guise of safety. Yet the Constitution and Bill of Rights were written precisely to prevent governments in America, state or federal, from interfering with our liberty, absent a jury trial at which they must prove fault. This jury trial requirement is called due process. It's guaranteed by the 5th and 14th Amendments, which mandate that the government comply with due process whenever it seeks to impair the life, liberty, or property of any person. Of course, a constitutional guarantee is only as reliable as is the fidelity to the Constitution of those in whose hands we repose it for safekeeping. Now back to these nanny state governors. He says they have assumed to themselves the power to write laws and enforce them. That assumption violates the U.S. Constitution as well as the constitutions of the states in which they were elected. Because the power to write laws and the power to enforce laws is required to be separated in America. We call that the separation of powers. It is, according to his late friend Justice Antonin Scalia, the most unique and freedom-protecting aspect of the Constitution. And it applies to states as well as the federal government i got to take a very quick break here, but we'll come back to Judge Napolitano's analysis of how the governors are beginning another wave of personal liberty attacks. And hopefully I'll help make the case why it's okay to stand up for your rights. We'll be back right after this.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. Once again, thank you for joining me as I revel in wrong think. This time around with the help of Judge Andrew Napolitano and an excellent article published in the Washington Times about how the governors have begun another wave of personal liberty attacks. He explains very clearly why this is not just a matter of, hey, in times of danger, we have to surrender our liberties in order to stay safe. No, there are things uh, that apply here that go beyond just that sense of we've got to feel safe. I don't know if you've noticed this, but have you noticed that uh, those in authority have a certain narrative that they're trying to promote and they're trying to make us feel as unsafe as possible in the hopes that we'll be compliant with whatever they tell us to do? It's hard to know what to believe, but I'm going to tell you at the foundation of whatever it is you believe, you've got to understand you have God-given natural rights that are yours by virtue of the fact you are a human being, that you are processing oxygen at this moment. And the whole reason that the Constitution was written, the whole reason the Bill of Rights was ratified, was to confirm that those rights are yours and that those rights limit the power of government over you. There is no loophole except when someone is scared They are to be limited at all times, lest someone use uh, emergency or necessity as the reason to uh, abridge those rights for their own tyrannical purposes. Now, Judge Napolitano says, you know, we add to the the separation of powers, the, the, uh, the fact that governors have been writing laws and enforcing them. He says, add to this the so-called lockdowns, a demeaning word originating in the shutdown of prisons during riots that directly impair personal liberties that are not only natural to us, but are expressly guaranteed by the Constitution as the U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted it. These lockdowns interfere with your freedom to speak, travel, worship, assemble, engage in commercial intercourse, and use property to its highest and best use. Napolitano says, under federal law, when a government employee employs government tools to impair these enumerated rights and does so without due process, that person commits a felony. Thus, when governors use police powers to interfere with personal liberty, liberty that is expressly guaranteed by the Constitution, and do so without a trial at which the government proves fault, they have violated both state and federal law, no matter their reasoning. Thus, all these executive orders regulating private personal behavior are profoundly unconstitutional and even criminal. There is no pandemic exception to the Constitution, he says. It is liberty that flows in our veins, not false promises of government safety. Now, I have to tell you, something interesting I've noticed here in my home state of Utah is that uh, Governor Gary Herbert has actually walked back some of the harsher aspects of his mandate that, well, you know, this is the way things are going to go. And now it's it's a little gentler. Well, we're requesting that people do this, and the, the whole mandate of you should not be meeting with uh, people outside of your household, limit it to 10 people or less. Now we're being told, well, that's, that's a request. But as I explained yesterday on, on my program, there are, 
there are some backdoor ways that that enforcement is being exploited that are just as ugly and just as coercive. And worse, they're leaning on the businesses and their employees to act as the enforcers. So there's this degree of separation, plausible deniability for the governor. Well, we're not doing it. They're just, you know, they're just, you know, enforcing policy. Yeah, under the threat of either losing their business license or being smacked with a $10,000 fine. It's not just disingenuous. It's, it's an outright lie. And as vindictive as this may sound, I hope Napolitano's right that when normalcy returns, when we finally recover our senses, I hope that the people responsible for these decisions are held criminally liable. They deserve it. Okay. Sorry, that's, that's a harsh thing to say, but... I look at the destruction they're causing and, and the, the damage that they are doing that will potentially last a lot longer than this pandemic will. And I, I, don't, uh, I, don't think that, uh, I don't think that's being overboard to say they should be held accountable. I don't think civilly is going to be enough. I think they should do jail time for it. One final thought here. Coercion or persuasion? What is left when the labels go away? Now, you take a look in any direction, and you're going to see division. And generally, the divisions you see uh, take the form of one of the various isms by which people or groups uh, define themselves, uh, characterizations like conservatism, progressivism, environmentalism, ableism, racism. They're applied with the same impulsiveness as a five-year-old who just found grandpa's label maker. But too often, these labels become a substitute for careful personal observation before arriving at a conclusion. In other words, they tend to be used as an excuse for shutting people down by pigeonholing them so we don't have to consider what they're saying. Now, that doesn't mean we're duty-bound to listen to every single word that somebody else is saying, but it's just pointing out that the belief in word magic doesn't somehow transfer another person into whatever we happen to be calling them. Our divisions are also exacerbated by this widespread tendency to use labels without clearly defining our terms. Take the words socialism or capitalism as they're commonly used in our current lexicon. Now, one person could define socialism as, well, it's a kind of collective kindness and fairness where those who have share with those who don't. And another person may define it as centralized planning in which a tiny elite claim the power to control how other people live their lives. Likewise, Capitalism can be seen by one as free enterprise, unencumbered by government regulation. Someone else might describe it as an exploitative environment in which the laws favor those with capital. And here's the kicker. There's a kernel of truth in each one of these definitions, and yet neither one of them is sufficient to fully flesh out what those terms actually represent. Even an appeal to the dictionary also tends to come up short. And when we add political partisanship to the mix, well the waters become even more muddied. So this is where getting in the habit of stripping away labels and examining the way that these ideas are implemented can provide us with, with some needed insight into whether they're sound ideas or unsound ideas. Remember, nearly anything can be spun to sound plausible, necessary, and beneficial. The biggest distinction that remains once we've taken all the labels off is whether an idea or policy is to be promoted by coercion or persuasion. And that's true for individuals as well as at the societal level. We advance our self-interest in every interaction with others by either persuading them or by forcing them to do what we want. 
And the same is true with how we set out to solve problems, either individually or collectively. See, this is where the right versus left paradigm starts to break down, because both the political left and right are enthusiastic about using the power of government, meaning force, to get their way. This is why nearly every issue that becomes politicized eventually turns into a raw power struggle. Let's take, for example, the, the need to how, to, how to care for the truly needy people among us. Now, there's an authentic need that we can clearly see, right? There are clearly people who need help. But how to deal with that crisis quickly becomes a question of coercion versus persuasion. I like how Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation describes the American welfare state. He says, through the threat of arrest, prosecution, incarceration, and fines, the American people are forced to be good, caring, and compassionate to others. <laughs> That's what happens when you take the sugar coating off. So for many people, the fact that government at various levels extracts money from us via taxes and then redistributes it to the poor or disadvantaged, well, that's proof that we're good people. But what if somebody said, I don't want to pay my taxes? What would happen then? And the answer is, of course, government would force our compliance with increasing levels of coercion, starting with threats, then fines, and eventually sending armed men to confront us. In other words, we don't have a choice in the matter. Whatever good may be happening via the taking of our money, it's not happening for the right reasons because we're expected to pay up or else. And don't forget the same entity that's taking that money from us is also taking a very healthy cut of that money for its own overhead costs, including paying its armed enforcers. So you can rationalize all day long, that well, as long as the need is being met, then some actual good has been accomplished. But again, Jacob Hornberger says, look, goodness can only come out of choices that people voluntarily make not when they're forced to be good, caring, and compassionate. The truth of the matter is, legislation is always backed by force. And when you use the force of legislation to create a virtuous citizenry, it's not going to happen. Because virtue has to be freely chosen. Which means, peaceful individuals have to be equally free to say no. I guess the bottom line is this. If an idea is so good that it has to be implemented or enacted at gunpoint or it has to be made mandatory, it probably wasn't such a great idea in the first place. And there are a lot of divisions around us right now that reflect this very clearly. This is The Brian Hyde Show.